All right, well, hey, everybody, welcome to Gilbert Church. Really good to have you with us today. Uh, before I dive into the message, I wanna celebrate what God did last weekend on Easter. Across our eight campuses, we had 53,226 people attend. Isn't that incredible? That is the highest on Easter ever in the history of our church. And before I show you this next number, let me give you just a little bit of context. The average church in America today, according to statistics, sees about one person come to faith in Christ every year. Average church, one person making a decision to follow Christ every year. Sometimes on holidays or other weekends, we've had in the hundreds of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and that is a miracle. We, we're just blown away by that. So with that in mind, let me show you how many people made a decision for Christ this past Easter. 2,079 of you. It's amazing. If you are one of those 2,079, Jesus says that you are free. That the burdens that you carry with you in life that have been weighing you down, they are gone. You are forgiven. Your past is completely wiped clean. You are free and forgiven. And this is just the start for you. This is not the finish line. This is the start. The start of every day waking up and going, God, I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to believe in you. I want to follow you. It's just the beginning. Today, we are starting a new series called Hey, God. Wouldn't it be something if you could push a button on your phone and talk to God instead of Siri? My wife is named Sarah, and so sometimes if I'm downstairs and she's upstairs, I'll yell out to her. I'll say, hey, Sarah. And my phone will beep and go, what can I help you with? And of course, Sarah doesn't hear me. She doesn't respond. So I have to yell again, and I'll say, hey, Sarah. And my phone will beep, what can I help you with? And I'm like, this is just a total circus act over here. But don't you wish that you could push a button and you could get an immediate answer from God? God, why did you create mosquitoes? Is the Bible really true? How come I didn't get that job or how come we had that divorce? We want an immediate answer from God for questions like that, but God doesn't often communicate that way. So in this series, we're gonna look at the most difficult questions that people have about God. If you are a person who is skeptical about faith, Jesus, or Christianity, this series is for you. If you are someone who has a family member, so your husband, your son, daughter, your parents, brother or sister, who is skeptical about faith, Jesus, or Christianity, then this series is for you. If you are a believer in Christ already, but you just want to know, why do I believe these things? And I want to be prepared if somebody asks me a hard question. I don't want to just fumble through that. I want to have a reason for why I believe. Then this series is for you. Now, by nature, I tend to be kind of a skeptical person. If I'm gonna believe something, I need evidence. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna make one of the most controversial statements that I have ever made in a message. Okay, if you're a mom and you got your kids sitting near you, you might wanna cover their ears because you don't want them to hear me say this. Here it is. I don't believe if your shoelace is untied that you will trip and hurt yourself. I don't think you will. I think you could go your whole day and have your shoelace untied. You could walk all over the place and nothing bad would happen to you. But I am like the only person I know who believes this. 
The shoes that I wear on a regular basis are from Target, and they're good shoes, but the shoelaces, for some reason, always come untied. And so I'll tie my shoes, I'll get in the car, I'll drive someplace, I'll get out, I'll look down, but oh, my shoe's untied. And it's kind of annoying, that sound of it flapping around, so usually I'll get down and retie it. But sometimes my hands are full and I just can't. In fact, recently I was walking to a restaurant off of Grand Avenue in St. Paul. And I got out of the car, I'm holding my newborn daughter, and I look down and my shoelace is untied. I was parked in kind of this weird parking lot, I had to walk through a back alley, and I see this guy, my age, coming towards me. And he has this kind of alarmed look on his face, he's intently looking at me. Now under normal circumstances, I might have gotten nervous about this, but he was holding a yoga mat. So I'm like, I don't think I'm gonna get mugged. You know, like people mostly aren't using their yoga mat, like give me everything you got. So, so I felt like I was okay, but as I got up to him, he looked at me, he goes, your shoelace. And I said, yeah, I, I know, I'll, I'll tie it, you know, when I get a chance. And you could tell he could not accept that answer. He, he goes to me, he goes, you know, this might be kind of weird, but do you want me to tie it for you? And I'm just picturing all these people from Eagle Brook driving along Grand Avenue. And they look over and they're like, hey, look, it's one of the pastors from Eagle Brook. And look at what he makes members of his church do. I'm thinking, you know, if you feed me grapes and massage my shoulders, maybe we can talk about the shoelaces here. I'm like, nah, I think that's too weird. So I didn't let him do it. I kept walking. I got up to the crosswalk. I was standing there waiting to go across the street. And this woman next to me goes like this. She said, your shoes. And I'm thinking, they're not on fire. They're not going to explode. I don't have a knife in my back. I'm going to make it across the street. So I, finally, I somehow got across the street, got to the restaurant, took one step into the restaurant, and this guy at the table almost fell off his chair. He's like, your shoelace. And at this point, I'm getting irritated. And my filter's going down. And so I said in a tone I probably shouldn't have used, I said, I know, it's untied. I'll get it. And you could tell he was getting a little defensive. He goes, well, I just didn't want you to trip or something. But see, that's just it. I've never tripped on a shoelace in my life. I have never woken up and found that I was unconscious. And then I asked people, what happened? Like, well, you tripped on your shoelace. <laughs> I've never been taken to the ER and had the doctor put my arm in a sling and go, this will teach you to, to tie your shoelace. But again, I realized that I'm in the minority here. If you are gonna get me to believe that leaving a shoelace undone is highly dangerous, you would have to show me some evidence. I would need to see some statistics about people who go to the ER every year because they didn't tie their shoelace. That's what it would take for me. I would need evidence. And it's the same way when it comes to faith. I didn't grow up going to church. Some people who are atheists believe that all Christians were just brainwashed by their parents. I say, that's why we have so many Christians in the world today, because they you know their parents brainwashed them and they don't know any better. Well, that's actually not true. In fact, when I got to college, I was pretty skeptical. I would say things like, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? And how do you know the Bible's true? I mean, it was written thousands of years ago. Don't you think it's been changed over the years? And I would ask the question that we're going to look at today, which is, is God real? And I would ask people, how do you know God's real? And the answer that I got from most followers of Christ was something like this. They would kind of stammer, they would stumble. They'd say, well, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know my, my, my mom told me one time, uh, I heard someone say, and then they would go, you just have to have faith. 
Yeah, yeah, that's it. You, you, you just have to have faith. And I remember saying, faith in what? Like, what, what are you even talking about right now? That same logic would apply to Santa Claus, the tooth fairy, and unicorns. I mean, you can close your eyes, you can clench your fists, you can speak it into existence that unicorns are real, unicorns are real, unicorns are real. And not going to make unicorns real. It's not going to make God real either. If we are going to believe in God, then we have to ask the question, what evidence is there for his existence? What evidence or proofs are there that an all-powerful, eternal, infinite being exists? Notice that I'm not asking you to check your brain at the door. I'm not asking you to just have faith. I'm not asking you to just follow your feelings and forget the facts. I'm asking you to keep an open enough mind to follow the evidence where it leads. In fact, I hope that you have faith, but look at how the Bible defines faith in Hebrews 11. It says that faith is the evidence of things that we cannot see. I love that phrase. Because sometimes people who are skeptical about God's existence, they'll say things like, well, just show me God then. And I'm thinking, well, the Bible says if you see God, you're not going to live. That, that's how holy and set apart God is. So you don't want to see God. And God is a spirit. So I can't produce God here for you. I, I can't get God to write you a message in the clouds. But that doesn't mean there's not evidence for his existence. Faith is the evidence of things that we cannot see. It's not a blind faith. It's not an irrational faith. It's a faith based on the evidence. What is the evidence? Well, I could give you 15 or 20 arguments for the existence of God, but I'm just gonna give you three. The first one is this, science. How many times have you been watching CNN or the History Channel or something like that, and the announcer will say, tonight we're gonna talk about faith versus science. Our first guest is a professor from the University of Oxford. He's an evolutionary biologist, and he is a best-selling author. He believes that science, not faith, has the answer to all of life's greatest questions. Our second guest is named Joe Smith, and he eats only red meat, believes that Oprah is the Antichrist, and lives in a swamp. And you're like, wait a minute. That there seems to be this concerted effort in the media to make Christians look naive, simple, and stupid. Like we're all just tugging on our overalls going, well, I think there's a big guy up in the sky. Even atheists tend to promote this belief. Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheist authors of our time, has said that if you believe that God is real, you have a mental illness. That's his words, not mine. Sam Harris, another atheist author, agrees. He says, we have names for people who hold to beliefs without rational justification. Interesting, he never really defines what rational justification is. Apparently, it's just what he thinks is rational. He says, we call them mad, delusional, or psychotic. But is that true? Is it true that if you believe in God that you're dumb and you're crazy and you're delusional? Well, that's not evidence. That's just name calling. Just because you say that someone's delusional and has no rat justification doesn't actually make it true. I have come to believe that science is not opposed to faith, but that science points towards a faith 
in God. In fact, all scientists today agree that in order for something to begin to exist, it has to have a cause. In other words, if something didn't exist and now it started to exist, there needs to be something outside of it that caused it to come into existence. All scientists agree about that. But the question is, what caused the universe to exist? For many years, scientists who didn't believe in God would have said nothing. The universe has always existed. It's just eternal. It's always been here. But then in 1929, a man named Edwin Hubble made a discovery that has rocked modern science. He discovered that the universe has not always existed. That there was a specific point in time when matter and the universe as we know it came to be. It began to exist. Therefore, it must have had a cause. That there was an explosion and the universe and matter as we know it came to be. But here's my question. When you've seen an explosion before, does that explosion tend to create chaos and disorder? Or does it tend to create design and order? I took my two sons several years ago with a few of their friends down to a Timberwolves game. And they were about five to seven years old at the time. And so this mom of these friends had told my wife, she said, you know, I'm, I'm not super comfortable with other adults driving my kids places. And my wife knows how I drive. So she's like, you need to drive differently than you normally drive. I said, absolutely. So I was in the right lane, 55 miles an hour, two hands on the wheel. No kidding, an 80-year-old grandma drove past me. She's like, she was just ticked at me. Get off the road. I'm like, I'm going downtown in my minivan. So I got downtown. We got to ramp A, and ramp A has this sharp incline that goes up before you take your ticket. And as we got there, one of the boys in the back goes, oh, I love ramps. I said, me too, and I floored it. My plan was that I was going to get the boys kind of fired up before the game. I was going to go fast up the incline, slow down, take the ticket, drive safely through the ramp. For the half second I thought about this, it seemed like a good idea to me. But what I didn't take into consideration was the curve jutted out funny. And so as I hit the accelerator, my right front tire smashed into the curve and it exploded. I mean, this was not a slow leak. This was like a gunshot just went off in my ear and I've got a pancake for a tire. So I wobbled into the first parking spot that I could find, got out of the car, and the boys were fired up. <laughs> one of them was like, I've never seen a tire so flat. The other one said, I can't wait to tell my dad about this. I said, you go ahead and tell your dad, but there's a nachos and a cotton candy waiting for you at that game if you don't tell your mom. <laughs> but here's what I discovered that night. When I got home and my wife said to me, what caused the explosion of your tire? It wasn't gonna work for me to go, nothing. Because it was something. It was either a nail or a pothole or a dumb dad, but something caused it. Did you know that one of the most predominant theories in science today, among people who will not accept that God created the world, one of the most predominant theories is called the nothing theory. What created the universe? Well, there was an explosion. Well, what caused the explosion? Nothing. Well, there was this big explosion. Something had to have caused it. No, nothing. It seems to me if you're a rational person, it would take much more blind faith to believe that than to believe that God is the cause and the creator of the universe. 
In fact, that night, what I noticed about my tires is that they were designed. When you looked at the intricate threads, you could tell. You don't look at a tire and go, look at how all that rubber just came together after billions of years to form the tire. It's clear that there's an intelligent mind that created it. When we look at the world that we live in, the universe that we live in, it shows the signs of being created by an intelligent mind. For example, one single cell in your body, one cell of DNA contains 30 encyclopedias of information, just one. Information doesn't gather together on its own over time. Actually, the opposite is true. If I was in a helicopter and I had a bunch of confetti and that helicopter exploded, what would you think if the confetti landed on the ground spelling out the word congratulations? You go, well, that didn't just happen. That wasn't just random by chance. Clearly, an intelligent mind gathered it and spelled it out that way. Francis Collins, who has studied DNA more than anyone, and DNA, by the way, is a cutting-edge place of science right now. He calls DNA the language of God. He said, I have no other explanation for how this would happen, how you would have DNA the way you do, apart from the existence of God. A human eye is more complex than a computer. If you saw a computer just lying there, you wouldn't say, oh my goodness, look at how this computer just came about on its own. The human eye is much more complex than any computer that you've ever used. Our world shows signs of being designed. That's why the very first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's such a crystal clear statement. First verse of the Bible. Doesn't necessarily say all the details of how God did that. It says he spoke it into existence, but we don't know all the details. That wasn't the point of what he was writing. But he's very clear that God created it. Psalm 19 says, The heavens tell of the glory of God. The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. But here's the thing. If the strength of gravity... If the amount of dark energy, if our distance to the sun or the ratio of protons to electrons was just this much different, if it was just a fraction of a fraction of a decimal point of a decimal point different than what it is, then we could not exist as people. We wouldn't have a planet or a universe to live on. Astrophysicists tell us that there are 122 variables that have to be precise to the decimal of all decimal points, all together at the same time in order for the universe to exist. What are the odds of all 122 of those variables randomly by chance coming together the way they are? Sir Roger Penrose, a mathematician and physicist, has studied this. He says the odds of that are one to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now, I'm not smart enough to write that out for you. But Fred Hoyle, who's an astronomer, says that the odds are better that a tornado will whip through a junkyard and produce a bowling 747. If you were going to bet on this, if you are going to bet your life on this, you would have a better chance of a tornado whipping through a junkyard than you would have of all 122 of these variables lining up precisely where they need to be. Hoyle used to be an atheist. He became a believer based on the evidence. We live in a tiny subdivision called the Milky Way. You thought you lived in Oakdale or Orono or Circle Pines, but, but you live in the Milky Way. 
And it really is a tiny subdivision when you compare it to the universe. It would take you a full light year to get across our universe. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And traveling at that speed, you would get across the universe in one year. If you travel that speed for one year, it would take you 5.88 trillion miles. And God created it all. If you started counting the stars one by one, and you did that one star per second, it would take you 2,500 years to count every star in the Milky Way galaxy. And God knows them each by name. That's why God said to the prophet Isaiah, he said, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? I would encourage you sometime this week to just go outside at night and look up and just ask this question, who created all this? God says it was me. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. If there is a designer, then you are designed. If God knows every star by name, he knows you by name. If no star is missing to God, then you are not missing to God. Even when other people don't notice you, God does. Even when other people forget about you, God doesn't. If you are feeling less than today, if you're feeling inferior, if you're feeling hopeless, you need to know that as long as you have breath, God is not done with you yet. Psalm 139 says that God knits you together in your mother's womb. Your body, your gender, your personality, all of it was created by God. You are the workmanship of an intelligent designer. Here's the second piece of evidence for the existence of God. It's morality. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, he said this. He said, everyone has heard people quarreling. My seat, I was there first. Come on, you promised. Children as well as grown-ups. What interests me, he writes, is the man who makes them is not saying that the other man's behavior does not please him. He's appealing to some sort of standard of behavior, expecting the other man to know a law, rule, or morality about which they agree. See, all of us seem to have this sense of right and wrong. We all know it's wrong to bud in line. Somebody does that, you're like, hey, get to the end of the line. We, we all know it's wrong to murder and rape and abuse. We, we all know that. The question is, how do we know that? If you're not a believer in God, you would say, well, over time, human beings have kind of evolved and collectively we've decided what's good for us and what's not good for us, and that's kind of how we get our sense of morality. A follower of Christ, Christianity believes that we know right and wrong because God has hardwired it into us. That God, the moral law giver, has given us a moral law, and that is the difference between us and animals. You see, when a lion kills a zebra, that's not murder. That's just what animals do. But if you believe in a pure evolutionary model, that's what we are. We're animals. And we've risen to the top of the food chain. And the logical thing to do if you're at the top of the food chain is it's survival of the fittest. You should oppress the weak. You shouldn't try to lift them up or help them. 
You should try to get rid of people, even in your own race and being, who are holding you back so that you can reproduce better in the future. That's what logic tells you. Ravi Zacharias, a Christian philosopher and author, was lecturing at Cambridge University on the existence of God to an audience that was very antagonistic and hostile to him. And during the question and answer session, there was one student in particular who was really antagonizing Ravi. And so finally, he asked him this question. And this is a rather graphic question, but it makes the point well. Ravi said, if I brought a baby up on stage and I took a knife and I cut that baby into pieces and killed it, would what I have just done been objectively, morally wrong? There was silence. The grad student let this awkward moment go by and finally he spoke. He said, well, I wouldn't like it, but I couldn't say that it was morally wrong. Now, like maybe you are right now, I almost fell off my chair when I read that. I thought, how can you be a grad student at one of the most prestigious universities in the world and think that doing that to a baby would not be morally wrong? But here's what that student understood. He understood that if he said to Ravi Zacharias, yes, it's objectively morally wrong, Ravi was going to ask him a follow-up question. And the follow-up question was going to be, by what authority do you say that that is objectively morally wrong? You see, without God, we don't have objective moral values. Everything is subjective. You may like something, you may like something different. Who's to say who's right and who's wrong? You say, well, it's our culture. Everybody collectively, we kind of agree what's hurtful and what's harmful to people. Oh, really? Well, what happens when an entire culture decides that the morally right thing to do is kill Jewish people? What happens when a whole culture of people says, you know what, let's get rid of people with mental illnesses and disabilities so that we can be even stronger in the future? What do you do then? Does that make that morally right? No, it does not. Because it's not our opinion. It's not our culture's opinion. It's God's opinion. The existence of morality, of objective right and wrong, which, by the way, we all intuitively know is true, points to the existence of of God. The third piece of evidence is this. It's experience. Now, up until this point, I've been appealing to your intellect. But for some of you, you say, you know, it's not that. I, I, I want to believe that God exists. It's just, I just don't feel God. God feels so distant to me. And there's actually a belief system called deism, which believes that God created the world and then just kind of distances himself. Lee Strobel, the author of Case for Christ, was walking through a Cracker Barrel. I think lots of fun things happen in Cracker Barrel, but he was walking through a Cracker Barrel and he heard this woman go, what's deism? And he stopped in his tracks. He was like, I've written a whole book on that. So he turned around, he went back to her, he said, well, deism is this belief that God created the world and then just kind of steps back and watches it function. But then he started to argue for the existence of miracles and God and how God is actively involved in our world. And finally, this woman said to him, she said, no, 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 no. I didn't say what's deism. I said, buenos dias. <laughs> Strobel's like, oh, oh. back to eating his fried chicken steak, I guess. But here's what deism is. It's this belief that God created the universe and then he just kind of lets it orbit around the sun and he's not involved. Jesus says, that's not true. God doesn't want you just to believe that he exists. 
He wants you to have a personal relationship with him. He wants you to know him and experience him in your life. In fact, if you were to ask me, how do you know? I mean, come on, how, how do you know that God is real? I love to read about this stuff, so I could give you arguments about creation and morality and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but deep down inside, I would say, I just know. It's because I've experienced God at work in my life. I've seen things and I've seen God do things that I can only explain by the fact that God is real. One of those is my father-in-law. My father-in-law was at a place in life about six or seven years ago where my wife and I looked at each other and we thought, this is never going to change. And then somehow by the power of God it changed. And so I asked my wife this week if she would be willing to tell her story of her and her dad. Take a look at the screen. Every once in a while, I get a text message from my dad. He writes me notes of encouragement, tells me how much he loves me, or sends a Bible verse. If you would have told me 10 years ago that my dad would be doing that, I never would have believed it. What God did in my dad's life proves to me that God is real. I began following Jesus when I was a little girl, but everything else in my life felt chaotic. My dad struggled with alcoholism his whole life. I'll never forget the day he promised to take me to the zoo. I was so excited. But when it was time to go, he was too hungover to stand up. We never went to the zoo. My mom was afraid of my dad. He was physically abusing her, even in front of us kids. So she took my sister, brother, and me, and we left. The four of us moved into a woman's shelter, and eventually my parents divorced. I didn't see my dad for three years. After the divorce, he stopped drinking and started taking steps to rebuild what he'd broken. Our relationship slowly began to heal. We'd go for walks, play sports, and spend time at my grandparents' cabin. But when I was 16, he stopped calling as often, and I sensed something was different. I called him and asked him point blank if he was drinking again. His answer was, why? And my heart sank because I knew what that meant. It was worse than I had realized. Alcohol abuse had led to drug addiction and criminal behavior and jail time. He tried treatment centers more than a dozen times, but he always went back to using. He told me he couldn't stop. I remember calling my dad the night before I left to study abroad. I cried on the phone, telling him I was scared he wouldn't be alive when I got home. I needed to hear him say, I'll be here. Instead, he just answered, I know, honey, I know. I was devastated. Eventually, Jason and I got married and we had children of our own. I couldn't imagine a time when I could trust my kids with my dad. After years of praying, I had almost given up. Therapists told us he was one of those addicts who would likely never change, but God had different plans. 
One weekend at church, the message was about praying for the impossible, and I knew what my impossible prayer was, healing for my dad. I wrote the same thing in my journal over and over. God, please give my dad a ministry. Use his pain. Two years later, my dad surprised me and took me up on my invitation to come to church. He started coming once a month, but he always kept beer in his car for when it was over. Soon, he began coming to church by himself every week. I saw something new coming alive in him. He checked himself into a Christian recovery center. He began going to Quest 180, Eagle Brook's addiction ministry, and this past January, he celebrated six years of sobriety. An impossible prayer was being answered. It's not just his sobriety that is the miracle. He's a new man. He accepted Christ's forgiveness, and he also accepted the forgiveness of his family, which has been huge. He loves Jesus. He loves other people. He's even learned to love himself. There is no explanation except that Jesus changed my dad. I've never seen God face to face, but I've experienced him in a way that's undeniable. I got my dad back. I remember one time I had encouraged my wife to do family counseling with her dad. I said, I want you to have a relationship with your father. And we went to this family counseling up in St. Cloud, and when we got done, we had found out that afterwards he would go drink. And I remember looking at each other at one point thinking, this will never change. There's just no way it's ever going to be different. And so to see my father-in-law where he is today, where he's leading an addiction recovery, helping lead that through Quest 180, and he comes to church every week, and he serves, and he seeks God. And he's a great man of God who's been leading people to faith in Christ. When people ask me, how do you know God is real? I say, I just know. I've experienced him and see him do things in my life that I can't explain any other way. I was reading yesterday as I was driving in about this little boy at the Mall of America who was thrown three stories over. And just yesterday, his family released a statement and said he's no longer in critical condition, that he's alert and he's conscious. And then they added this statement. They said, Jesus did a miracle for our son. He said, we can't explain it any other way other than it was just Jesus' protection. There are some things that happen in life and you say, you know what, I, I just can't explain that apart from the fact that there is a God who's real. And there are some of you here today who you need to know that God is real. You don't feel close to him, but you need him in your life. The Bible says when you draw close to him, he will draw close to you. That as you begin to draw close to God and you seek him out through reading the Bible or coming to church or listening to messages and praying, that you will just know. You'll know that God is with you. You'll know that God loves you. You'll know that God is a refuge and will protect you. You'll know that God will give you the strength that you need to get through this day and this week. Just know that God is real. 
And so today I want to close in prayer and I want to pray for those of you who today need to know or need to be reminded that there is a God who created you and loves you and is with you right at this minute. That he is real and he is here. And that you would be reminded of that today. Let's pray. God, I pray for every person who needs to know that you are real. God, some of us have so many doubts and we don't feel close to you. But I pray, God, this week that as we draw close to you, that you would draw close to us and that we would sense your presence and your love in our life. God, if there's anyone here who has never followed you and said, God, I believe in you, I trust you, I pray they would make that decision and that commitment. It starts with a relationship through Christ. And God, if there's anyone here who is struggling and they're in pain and wonders how you could exist and allow them to go through that, would you just remind them, God, would you speak to them that for those who love you, you can work all things for our good. And Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here who has a family member or someone that they care about deeply, who's struggling with an addiction or something else in life, I pray that you would renew in them right now a belief that nothing is impossible with God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything at all, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great weekend, everybody.